Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the world-famous Jiggy Jaguar radio program. Broadcasting live from Hutchinson, Kansas. Call Jiggy right now. 267-22-JIGGY. Presenting Jiggy Jaguar. Yes, indeed, it is the big broadcast. We are live. Radio. On demand archived audio. Yes, it is that show. Get a hold of us at JiggyJaguar.com. Uh, iHeartRadio, TalkShoe, Spotify, all the various places. 2 Central, 3 Eastern, 12 Pacific, 1 PM Mountain Standard, and of course, 24 7 on our website. Twitch it on the Twitch today. Live video on our website as well. And of course, selected editions will be appearing at AMF. Lots of things happening, as they say. I don't know who's saying it. Don't know why they're saying it, but they are indeed saying it. You know, one of the things that I I, I, I don't ever care about is our stats. <laughs> I just don't care about any of those things. However... <laughs> That light is not as bright as it should be compared to that one. I don't know. That's 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 the video person in me. Uh, I was thinking about this uh, earlier with some of the different things that, that go on. And one of the things that does go on is I have people every once in a while who will get in touch with me and they will, they, they have all this, they have all these numbers they want. They, they, they want me to give them all sorts of numbers constantly. And I always am like, why? (laughs) why do you need my numbers they always want my numbers and personally the only reason why I make a big deal about the fact of people wanting to know my numbers is because I don't know my numbers (laughs) I spend so much of my time making content that I don't ever really bother to look at my numbers. I just don't. Uh, You know, I often have made various comments to people in the past about, you know, I don't know my numbers. I don't, I don't do any of that stuff. And I cite various things. 
For instance, um, we had, um, who was it? Uh, Dr. Jerome Corsi. We had Dr. Jerome Corsi on our radio program. Uh, used to have him on all the time. You know, uh, I, I love Corsi. Some of his stuff's a little... I don't know. <laughs> so, some of his stuff is, is a little odd sometimes. The, uh, the, the stuff where he's talking about Obama being born in another country. And I get all that, but realistically, what are you going to do about it at this point? You know, how long's Obama not been the president? <laughs> but one of the things that I always like to do with when people start asking me about my numbers, when they when they start wanting to know information about numbers, they're always like, hey, you know, blase blah, you know, they 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 want to know my numbers. And I'm always like, I, I don't know. I'm making content. I always tell people that after we had Dr. Jerome Corsi, we had him on the show, and he he got a hold of me. Uh, he also got a hold, of, I believe, Dan Perkins at one point, and he said, "Here's the deal. After I was on your guys' show and we did the interview, my sales jumped through the roof." And I had done no other radio except for your show that week. Thank you. Okay, that's all I need to know. So I had an advertiser recently uh, approach us. And they wanted to know all sorts of things. So one of the things that they wanted to know was they wanted SEO information. SEO stands for Site Engine optimization, I believe. Is that how it is? Well, I don't know what an SEO is. I don't know what an SEO works, and I don't know what an SEO does. To quote the great Rush Limbaugh. However, I did go ahead, and I'm like... Let's try to find some SEO information. So I consulted a friend of mine, and he went ahead and uh, went and checked uh, all the different stuff. Went and checked it all out. Come to find out, here's the situation. SEO, apparently our SEO is very, very good. <laughs> apparently... It is very good. It is amazing. So, you know, I guess that's just the way things are. I, I, I guess that's how that all works. So, I don't know. But we're going to do this. We are going to go to a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to go to our first guest. And uh, we'll be back. A after special this. message from Transmedia Worldwide. Chris died suddenly of a heart attack and leaves behind his wife, Allison, and four children. 
We are crowdfunding to help ensure stability for Allison and her children at this incredibly difficult time. Go over to GoFundMe.com. That's G-O-F-U-N-D-M-E dot C-O-M. Search Chris Henley. This is an incredible fundraiser. We need to give them some help. They need some of your hard-earned money over there. Go over to GoFundMe.com. Search Chris Henley. Donate. Help the family out today. And tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia. World. Wide. An incredible new marketing partner joins us today here at Transmedia Worldwide. An incredible new crowdfunding campaign. They need some of your harder money over there at Kickstarter.com. That's K-I-C-K-S-T-A-R-T-E-R.com. Search Lime and Vinegar. It's a slice of life. It's a great feature film exploring the struggles of two Latina immigrants who spend their days cleaning other people's houses just to get by. Forced to put their own hopes and dreams on hold when the ride is delayed, two Latin American women find themselves stranded in Southern California home where they were hired to clean. With not much to do, they slowly begin to push the boundaries of acceptable behavior in a stranger's home. Drinking wine, trying on clothes, inviting guys over, and in the process, they are forced to confront their own pasts and their failures, ultimately learning some valuable lessons about themselves and each other. What do you do when there's nothing left to clean? The film is shooting in April with real immigrants starring in the two lead roles. There are a lot of cool rewards available on the Kickstarter page, including the opportunity to have your song or music video playing in the film for the whole world to appreciate. Everyone gets their name in the credits for just $5 with a compelling story and a gorgeous cinematography Lime and Vinegar is a cross between Roma and the Breakfast Club. Go over and support him today at K-I-C-K-S-T-A-R-T-E-R.com. Search Lime and Vinegar and tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. Go check it out today. We have got an incredible new marketing partner with us today at Transmedia Worldwide. My thanks to Larry Tracy for joining us today, but let's talk about an incredible new Indiegogo campaign. It is Wellness Luggage Sets. That's right. They provide suitcases that shine to give you stars in your eyes. They are strongs and helpfuls. Go over to indiegogo.com. That's indiegogo.com. Indiegogo.com. Search wellness luggage sets. These folks are absolutely amazing. They have gotten an incredible, incredible campaign. They are producing wellness luggages set for people made in amazing products to be strong, beautiful, and easy to use for people and travelers. We need your help to get this funded. Go over to Wellness Luggage Sets on Indiegogo.com. That's Indiegogo.com. I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com. Give some of your harder money today. The project team has produced a fantastic working demo. For their concept, the ability to successfully produce a prototype may be affected by product development or financial challenges, but they need you to go over and support them today. They've got some backers, and they need some of your help. Go over there. Check it out today. Happiness Luggages. They're made by Travel Liam. 
Travel Liam Business out of London, United Kingdom. They're doing some incredible things and they need your help. Go do it today. Help them out and tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. Check it out today. We are back live here, coast to coast, border to border on iHeartRadio today. We have got our next guest joining us. He is a fantastic guest. He is Brendan J. Weekert. He's the author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. And uh, Brandon joins us live here on our big, big broadcast. So Shadow War is an incredible, just an incredible book. And right now, with all the things going on in the Middle East, it seems to be a a very hot topic. Talk to us a little bit about the book Shadow War. Well, uh, I hate to say, uh, you know, I told you, but um, the book was a warning about exactly what's happening now. And so far, everything has progressed in the Middle East exactly as I had predicted in the book. Um, And I do not think this is going to remain isolated to only Hamas versus Israel. I think that Hezbollah is waiting for Israel to commit fully to a fight with Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And then they're going to open up a second front to the north of Israel, which is going to basically spark a wider war. Wow. Uh, talk to us a little bit about why you think that's going to happen. Well, because Hamas and Hezbollah, as well as Fatah, which is the other party that competes for power over the Palestinian territories there in the West Bank, um, but those three terrorist groups um, in December 2017 met in Beirut, Lebanon, with the now-deceased Iranian General uh, Qasem Soleimani, And all of them got together and announced that they were going to be pooling their resources together in order to launch a third intifada. Now, in the book, I plot out how the Trump administration delayed the initiation of that conflict. That conflict was supposed to begin by 2020, but Trump killed Soleimani, and that set back the Iranian plans. But now, of course, after three years of President Biden, who does not share the same view that Iran is a threat that that the Trump administration believed. Um, They they basically spent the last several years undoing all of the Trump administration policies toward the Middle East, letting Iran out of its box. And now through their terrorist proxies, Hamas and Hezbollah primarily, uh, Iran is extending their steel claws to attack American proxies like Israel in an effort to push the Americans out by weakening our allies in the region. Brandon J. Weaker with us today. He joins us live here on our big program. The Shadow War is the latest from him, and he joins us live here on our big program. So this book, you put a lot of time and effort into the book. Uh, What are you hoping folks get out of the book? Well, I'm hoping that obviously the prediction aspect is now coming true, So I was hoping to to warn people and try to inspire leaders in D.C. As you know, I'm a defense consultant, so I interact routinely with leaders in D.C. I was hoping with this book to prevent this from happening, but now that it is happening, the back half of the book is all the solutions. And I'm hoping that, given that I've been proven right, the solutions that I'm talking about in the book will be taken more seriously, namely... We need, as America, to basically midwife the birth of a new regional alliance in the Mideast, consisting of Israel on one side 
and the Sunni Arab states as led by Saudi Arabia, who will then work together in a new security alliance to contain Iran to prevent it from doing the kind of nefarious terrorist acts that it has been doing, such as the one that it sponsored, I believe, uh, with Hamas in Israel. Brandon J. Weekert with us today, author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. He joins us live here on our big program, talking a little bit about his incredible, incredible book. Now, your book, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, delves into the geopolitical landscape of the Middle East. What inspired you to explore this particular topic, and what do you hope readers will gain from your insights into Iran's ambitions? Well, I uh, worked in government for many years. I started out in Capitol Hill, and I I worked with national security policy. And when I was in government, the big issue was the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. So the Middle East consumed a lot of bandwidth for our you know policy people. Uh, and so that was sort of one of the big issue areas I cut my teeth into. I studied a lot of it in college and uh, uh, my master's program as well. And so that I had always wanted to do some work on the Middle East um, to offer my insights, which I think are very unique and different from that neoconservative element that defined the George W. Bush administration, and certainly what I believe is very different from the Obama-Biden element, which basically wants to appease Iran and, and abandon the region to the Iranians and therefore the Chinese and the Russians. So I'm offering a third way. Um, and because I do a lot of consulting work with the Defense Department, um, it gives me some abilities to really have some keen insights onto what's going on, how I was able to predict this war at least a year before it happened. Um, and so, the, you know, this has always been part of my career and um, it's something that's a very important aspect of U.S. foreign policy. We don't like to talk the Middle East because of all the bad experiences there. Unfortunately, we're going to have to have some solution for it. We have got a great guest with us today. Brandon J. Weekert is with us. The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. The title of the book, Shadow War, implies a hidden, ongoing conflict. Can you elaborate on the nature of the Shadow War and how it impacts international relations in this region, Brandon? Absolutely. Uh, it, it's a shadow war. Now it's coming out into the light, unfortunately, which is why I'm worried it's going to become a world war. But for the last 50 years, since the uh, overthrow of the Shah of Iran and the replacing of his reign with that of the Islamists, uh, the Grand Ayatollah Khomeini, um, now he's dead, of course, and now we have a new Ayatollah, but his the, the Khomeini regime is in power. Um, ever since 1979, when the revolution happened, basically Iran has gone about spe- spending all of its time and money developing these international terrorist contacts that, so that they could basically initiate their revolution globally. They can't do it conventionally with military force because their military, when it goes up against the United States or even Israel's, it won't match. But this is the reason why Iran has spent the last 50 years developing terrorist proxies, using unconventional warfare capabilities, as well as uh, trying to build nuclear weapons so that they can basically fight the Americans and their allies um, using these unconventional, unorthodox methodologies that we might not have good defenses against. And I think that we've seen with the war on terror that it's very hard for Western societies to be able to respond and prepare properly for the kind of terrorist attacks that Iran 
conducts and plans to conduct in the near future. And so by writing this book, I was trying to highlight the different tactics and strategies the Iranians are going to use to try to fight and defeat the Americans and their allies as part of a larger, not just political or geostrategic ambition by Iran, but a larger religious uh, Iranian belief that they must become the masters of the Middle East, and therefore they must subjugate their Sunni Arab uh, neighbors and destroy the, the Jews of Israel, that it's more than just politics. This is an actual religious imperative, which is what makes Iran such a dangerous regime. We've got a great guest with us today. He joins us live. Brandon J. Weekert is with us. He's the author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. And he joins us live here on our big broadcast. The Middle East is a complex and dynamic region with various competing interests. Can you provide insights into the role played by the regional and global powers in Iran's quest for supremacy and how they influence this situation, Brandon? Well, um, up until about a hot minute ago, the Saudis were leading or trying to lead an anti-Iran coalition in the Sunni Arab world. Um, this was the basis for behind the Trump administration doing the Abraham Accords because they had finally a willing partner in, uh, in Riyadh um, in which they, they could rely on the Sunni Arab leader, Mohammed bin Salman, to basically lead the charge in the Sunni Arab world against the Shiites of Iran. And in so doing, the, the Trump administration was trying to marry um, that power with Israeli power to contain Iran. Unfortunately, though, um, the Hamas attack in Israel is forcing the Israelis to understandably strike back at Hamas in Gaza, which means that 2.5 million Palestinian Arabs could potentially be targeted by this conflict uh, that Israel's having to be drawn into. But what that means is that the Saudi government, they are afraid of their own people. And the Saudi Arabian people are sympathetic to the Palestinian Arabs. And so um, the Hamas attack was very effective from a strategic level because it ensures that, at least for now, Israel cannot be married to Saudi Arabia because the Saudis are backpedaling from that new relationship because they know that if they get too close to the Israeli leadership at a time when Israel is getting ready to strike Arabs in the Palestinian territories, of course, their own people in Saudi Arabia will rebel against them and could overthrow the regime. We have got a tremendous guest with us today. He joins us live here on the telephone, author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Brandon Chait Weekert with us today. Pick up the book on Amazon or pick it up from most major book retailers. It is an absolutely amazing read. Now, you've also authored books on topics related to technology, biohacking. How do these areas of expertise intersect with or influence your understanding of the geopolitical dynamics in the Middle East, Brandon? So, uh, you know, I began my career not in technology or science. I began it as a policy and political guy, and my, my academic training is in international relations and political science. So I'm coming from that world. As I was delving and dealing with these kind of traditional geopolitical issues, I was finding that technology and the race to acquire new technologies, whether it be biotechnology or new aerospace technology, metamaterials, whatever, 
um, that that was intersecting with international relations and international security. And so what I started doing was looking for any official overlap, and this is why you know you hear the military using terms like a geotechnology analyst to describe me in some cases, because I look at the traditional elements of geopolitics and I marry it to te- high technology development and the, the impact that high technology development has on international relations. And so that they all kind of play into each other. In fact, the origins of the Shadow War, my book. Um, actually come from my first book, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. In that book, I have a chapter detailing Iran's ballistic missile and space threat, and I had so much research from that, I told my publisher, I said, look, I've got enough research to do a book specific to Iran. Why don't I take what I've got, because I can't use it all in Winning Space, because it's not only about Iran, and why don't I just make it about Iran, my next book, and that was the origins of the Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. And in the Shadow War, you're not only going to see this, the geopolitical understanding of what's going on, but the back chapters deal with what kind of exotic technology threats Iran is developing, things like electromagnetic pulse bombs, uh, things like their um, cyber warfare capabilities, their satellites, what they're doing with satellites, what their ballistic missile program really means, uh, their drone program, and what they're using for the what they're using their drones to do, and so all of these things kind of interact with each other, and I think form a really interesting area of study, which is why I do this. We have got a great guest with us today. Joins us live here on our big program. So, Brandon, before we let you go, how do people get in touch with you online, buy your book, and get involved with you on social media? Well, unfortunately, I had to deactivate my social media because of a security issue. Um, But uh, you can follow me. I'm a senior editor at 1945.com, and you just type in 19 and then F-O-R-T-Y-F-I-V-E.com, 1945.com. And you can buy my books at Amazon or anywhere they're sold, preferably online, but they'll, they'll also be in the bookstores as well. Fantastic. Well, you have written an incredible book here. What's next for you as an author? Uh, well, I'm looking at World War Three. Wow. <laughs> well, you don't you don't mess around, baby. Good lord. No, I try not to. No. <laughs> well, Brandon, have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks for making some time for us today, yep. and uh, we will talk to you soon. Thank you, my friend. Yes, sir. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Appreciate it. There he goes. That is Brandon J. Weaker. Joins us today here on our big program. That wraps it up here for this edition of our big broadcast. My thanks to our incredible guest. Before we take a quick time out, let's talk about how woke culture has now infected kids, cartoons, and toys. They are trying to separate your kids and your grandkids from their family and from God We recommend you introduce Jesus to your kids as early as possible. That's why we are partnering with the Talking Jesus Doll. Online at JesusDoll.com. Talking Jesus Doll is a beautiful plush Jesus doll that talks. When you squeeze his hand, he speaks ten phrases that Jesus said in the Bible. And from the Lord's Prayer to John 3.16 and everything in between, go to the website, JesusDoll.com. With everything going on, it's so important to introduce children to the love and lessons of Jesus in their formative years. 
What I like about it is that it makes it really easy to talk to a kid about Jesus. It is the perfect conversation starter. And we love this product. And just, it, so does everybody else. The Talking Jesus doll is loved by families on four continents and has hundreds of five-star reviews online. The reviews are absolutely amazing, and kids are learning Bible verses and using the doll, ministering to others. If you have kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, this is the perfect gift for any holiday. It also teaches your kids before the world does. Go to JesusDoll.com, use the promo code J-I-G-G-Y. That's JesusDoll.com. Use the promo code J-I-G-G-Y. So we are going to take a brief time out here on our big broadcast. When we come back, we've got more coming up. It is the world famous Cheeky Jaguar Radio Broadcast back here in a few moments. Thanks for checking us out today. Archived audio available via iHeartRadio, TalkShoe, or our website, J-I-G-G-Y-J-G-U-A-R.com. More coming up. Through the deal here, uh, we have got a great guest to kick off our broadcast day here. The fantastic author of Barack Obama's True Legacy. Uh, an individual that I've had on this broadcast a couple times in the past, Daniel Greenfield, is with us. He's an investigative journalist at the David Horowitz Freedom Center. He's contributed several hard-hitting essays to this book on Obama's role in the BLM riots, the crime wave we are suffering through now, and terrorism in Israel. And he's made himself available to talk about this incredible book. And um, Daniel, first of all, tell me and Dan Perkins a little bit about Barack Obama's True Legacy, which is an incredible book here. Tell me about this. Thank you. So this is a book that a number of uh, authors, really serious conservative people, people like Robert Spencer and Claire Opus contributed to. And it's about charting the impact that Obama has had in our country and that he's still having in our country today because in many ways, the Biden administration is Obama's third term. Hopefully it does not become the fourth term. It's doing the same kind of destructions, pursuing the same radical agendas, dividing us by race, weakening America abroad, encouraging terrorists, and making identity politics the center of absolutely everything. So, Dan, uh, Dan yes, Perkins, what, 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 what do you have for our guest? Well, a uh, fascinating subject. Um, um, I've got a couple of questions I'd like to ask him. Um, do you think that Obama is in fact been in control of the White House during the Biden administration, or is that a false narrative? Well, it depends on how we define control. You know, presidents are defined by their staff, it's defined by the people around them, the team that they built. And the team can carry on even when the guy is not actually at the wheel on a regular basis. The Biden team is very much Obama's team, also a bit of Elizabeth Warren's team. They have Obama's priorities. They're carrying it forward. So it doesn't mean that Obama needs to be on the phone with them, holding conferences with them uh, every day. What it means is that the people, the team that Obama built around them to do the things to change America, that team is still active. That team is still working on this from inside and out to the administration. 
and Obama can check in with them every now and then, but he can also just be in his house in Hawaii or his mansion in D.C. He can go off, he can vacation. He doesn't really have to individually worry about these things because his people are carrying it forward. There's been a great deal of discussion recently in a book and a documentary on Mrs. Obama, Michelle, being the Democratic candidate for president in 2024. What do you think? Well, I think Michelle Obama never particularly liked her official position. She likes being a celebrity. Being president, even a fake president like Joe Biden involves... Sorry? No, go go, 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 go ahead, my friend. Go ahead. Keep talking. Uh, no, uh, involves a whole lot of work. So I know people have this idea that she could run. I think if she did run, uh, it would be effective. But I don't think she particularly wants to run. And barring some sort of emergency, there's no particular reason for her to run. You know, in a way, uh, Obama had to be at least a bit more moderate than he was in office because people kind of sensed that he was radical. Joe Biden has been a great cutout in this regard because nobody looks at Joe Biden and thinks this guy is a Marxist, this guy is a socialist. Um, and the result is the Biden administration is actually more radical than the Obama administration, not because Biden is more radical than Obama, but because uh, he has more freedom or the facade that he presents has, gives them more freedom to wreck America at an even faster pace. Having Michelle Obama out front would defeat that kind of purpose. They want somebody out front who is not going to appear to be another Obama. You know, I, I've, I've heard that story. I talked to the author who wrote, the, wrote the, the screenplay for the movie and wrote the book and claims to have known the Obamas for, uh, for some period of time. Um, I, I just can't see Barack Obama as first gentleman. Yeah, I don't think he'd be down with that. Uh, his ego is far too big to accommodate that. Neither do I think they have the kind of arrangement where there'd be a comfort level where he's actually running things. You know, she's just uh, the nameplate we've had. You know, we've had candidacies like that. We've had governorships like that. Other countries have had presidencies like that. I don't think we're quite ready for it, and I don't think it's even really needed, which is why, unless there's a real emergency, I don't see that happening. And And... Using your own words, a real emergency. What would that emergency look like? Well, potentially we're looking at it. Uh, Joe Biden is polling very, very, very badly. Um, There's a possibility that he would lose to President Trump or really any Republican candidate who is at all alive. Uh, The poll numbers are bad. So there could be some potential scenario where they have to urgently remove him from the ticket and they would need somehow to swap somebody in. But the legalities of doing that would be really challenging. So I think that's a daunting possibility. What is his contact, uh, such as it is, with foreign leaders? Uh, Obama? Well, he has the Obama Foundation. One of the notable things about the Obama Foundation, like the Clinton Foundation, or Biden's Penn Biden Foundation is that it's a good way to accept money from foreign interests. That's a good excuse for meeting with all sorts of foreign leaders and officials. And the Obama Foundation, like the Clinton Foundation, has always been kind of foreign facing. There's an interest in all sorts of international work there. Uh, so explicitly, Obama hasn't been doing an international world tour, but he has the perfect machinery for uh, interacting with foreign governments and leaders. So, um, 
Do you think the foreign leaders prefer dealing with Barack than they do with Joe? I don't think anybody prefers dealing with Joe Biden, uh, good Lord. <laughs> but, you know, they're dealing the day-to-day basis. They're dealing with the same people. And in, in the Obama administration, it would be routine for Obama's people to tell foreign diplomats just to ignore Joe Biden, and they would correct him. They would walk back what he says. Uh, they'd also do this with John Kerry, by the way, that had somebody specially assigned just to walk back the things that he says. And they treated him like he was an embarrassment, and he seemed oblivious to it. The bizarre thing is they're now treating him the same way when he's formally the president of the United States. They walk back the things he says. They treat him like an embarrassment. And, you know, sometimes they're just going to throw up their hands. He said, God save the queen. We don't know why he said that. But these are actually our positions. Pay attention to the positions. Don't pay attention to Joe Biden. And the way that kind of simplifies things, it's like when John Fetterman was locked up in the psych ward. And then there comes running stories about how his office staffers are continuing to work just the same way. And Senator Dianne Feinstein's staff was also continuing to work the same way. So we've come to a point in our nation, which is a very sad point, where officially the president, the senator, can be completely dysfunctional. They may not know who they are, where they are. They may be locked up in a psych ward. But it's the staffers who are actually running things, and the staffers keep things consistent. So it doesn't matter if the guy in question is there, he's in a psych ward, he's in a cemetery. It will go on just the same way, and foreign leaders will deal with the same exact people they would deal with anyway. So I, 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 I can't let that go by. I, I've got to ask to make sure I heard what you were saying. Um, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a rule in, in uh, law that um, grand juries could indict a ham sandwich. Are you saying we could, we could have a president who can't function mentally or physically, but still be president of the United States because the staff is really running the show? I mean, effectively, that's probably what we have now. We've had it in the past, at least once, with Woodrow Wilson when he suffered a stroke and his wife effectively ran the country. The 25th Amendment is supposed to prevent things from that from happening, but to implement the 25th Amendment, you actually have to have cabinet members go ahead and pull that trigger and the one smart thing that Biden has done, he made Kamala his vice president. So anybody who's thinking of pulling that trigger has to contemplate whether it would be better to have Biden in office, no matter how much, how badly he's functioning, or to have Kamala in office. And yep. with Biden, at least, you know, he might have good days, he might have bad days. You can medicate him. You're not medicating Kamala. You're not going to have any good days. <laughs> You're not going to have any good days. That is amazing. So I love that. You line. know, I. I, I'm curious about what you just said because um, one of the Republican conservative uh, objections with impeaching Joe Biden is that for the rest of the uh, rest of the term, we would have Kamala Harris as president, yep. and no, nobody wants that. Now we have a situation where this congressman has issued a bill of impeachment to impeach them both simultaneously, the president and the vice president. And that would, and if, if that were, either they resigned or they were indicted, that would make the Speaker of the House the new president of the United States. Yeah, that would be interesting territory, of course, to make any of that possible. The Senate needs to be uh, Republican and to have a conservative Republican majority, not just a 
putatively Republican one, and currently it's Kamala Harris would be casting the tie-breaking vote. So at the moment, this is all really speculative, but it would be interesting territory. I think it would be fascinating territory. And, and you know, I remember all the, the, the drama that was around Richard Nixon over Watergate. And when that day when the Republican leadership in the House and the Senate went to the White House and said to the president, for the good of the country, you have to resign. I think with a little bit of luck, we may be very close to that same seminal moment for Joe Biden. Because the, so far, the, the press and the Democrats have been fairly successful in ignoring the uh, whistleblower and the supposed 17 recordings of Joe and, and his son if they get released and people hear the president of the United States accepting to take a bribe for $5 million, isn't he toast? Uh, that's very optimistic. We just uh, saw Hunter Biden get a complete pass on everything he did. And we have video, we have photos, we have documents, we have volumes of those. Um, and of course, the the, uh, the media and the big tech companies and elements of the government announced that it was just Russian disinformation. You can bring out the recordings of Joe Biden accepting a bribe, but even assuming those recordings do exist and actually have them, saying it in the clear and they will say it's Russian disinformation, it's a deep fake, it's created by AI. And frankly, much of the country is not going to care that much one way or another, because most people think that the government is already ridiculously corrupt, which it really is. And the Democrats are not about to do what Republicans did and pressure Biden to resign if the result is that they're going to be worse off. If it means stepping down for Kamala, maybe they'd consider it. If it means stepping down for, you know, Republicans, obviously they're not going to consider it. Assuming Republicans take the House and the, hold the House and take the Senate, though there are possibilities there, they could certainly impeach him over it. But don't assume that the Democrats or the media will ever admit a single thing and treat it as anything other than a coup which is just the state of play now. But, it, but if, if, if the Republicans get control of both the House and the Senate, mm -hmm. it would, it, and you, in order to make your scenario work, Joe Biden has to win the presidency. Yep, because uh, otherwise if, the whole point is moot. If, if Joe Biden doesn't win the president, well, wait a minute. Was it moot when after he after he finished his term that this House it, uh, issued a bill of impeachment on a president who was already out of office and carried out an impeachment trial? Uh, yeah, but I somehow don't see Joe Biden running for re-election again if he loses in 2024. Uh, they were obviously afraid of Trump running for re-election, which he did. If Joe Biden runs for re-election again in uh, 2028, I I'd like to see that honestly. I mean, we could you could still impeach him; it would make a, an important point. Uh, but he can't he can't run in 2028 because he can only serve two terms. Well, yes. Yeah, so if he loses in 2024, then you know there's no real threat of him running in 2028 at that point. Yes, he would be a thousand years old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that might just carry his body around, but I don't think anybody's in the Democrat Party after that is going to go. We need him back. We, he's the only man who can win. So there was a story today that um, 
the uh, governor of California is getting his house in order uh, so that he can announce um, after Thanksgiving that he's going to run. Is there anybody uh, seriously going to ch challenge Joe, or is is he persona non grata? Newsom actually made it to the head of the line. He has set up the organization. He's got the connections to the money. He was all set to pull the trigger, and then the Democrats did okay during the midterms. Uh, everybody bowed out, including Newsom. Uh, if Newsom has some sort of plan to dive in anyway after ruling it out, well, that would obviously be really bad news for Joe Biden. It would be bad news for Republicans because Joe Biden is probably the best asset Republicans have in the election. That said, Newsom in the past has signaled uh, pretty explicitly he started fundraising for Joe Biden. He signaled pretty strongly that he was endorsing Joe Biden. So unless you've got this kind of recording of him accepting bribes or just something horrendous coming out, and then Newsom and others will be able to rationalize it and say, well, we endorsed him at the time, but now it's clear he's unfit and we need to run. So if in order, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but in order for what you're suggesting to work, um, the the potential candidates for like Gavin Newsom have to turn on the president. And you're saying that if the story is true and the tapes are played and the American people hear uh, Joe Biden accepting a $5 million bribe or more, uh, Gavin Newsom would probably jump and um, the Republican, the Democratic leadership would capitulate to him and not, have, not try and run Joe Biden? Well, you know, I have to emphasize this is not about ethics, morals, or they, these people have no shame. They have no decency. They have no sense of right or wrong. The only thing they would really care about is the polls. If they look at the numbers and they see it is absolutely unworkable, Biden is going to lose. This is not happening. And enough people and the Democrats, enough donors tell them we need an alternative. And that's it. It's still pretty late in the game for somebody to jump in. They would need Biden's cooperation to make this work, which means really instead of readers publicly doing a public show of coming to him privately, they would pressure him and tell him this is not happening. You have to step down. You're going to destroy your legacy, protect your legacy, announce that you're not going to run first, that you're ending your campaign, you're handing over your campaign operation to Newsom or to whoever, and effectively the fix would be in at that point. So you're, you're basically articulating um, Lyndon Johnson's decision not to, to run for re-election. And you're also articulating uh, the decision. And it's interesting, it wasn't the Democrats that forced Nixon to resign. It was the Republicans that forced him to resign. And so you're saying that it's possible that the Democrats reading the tea leaves that he's got no chance to win and there could be devastation in the House and the Senate that he'll they'll force him to step down. That would be the only they, scenario that happens. Right. And, and will they take Kamala as the nominee? No, absolutely not. Her poll numbers are terrible. They, there's no point in trading Biden uh, for Kamala if your goal is to actually bring out somebody who can win. And Newsom has the financial connections. He's put himself, he's made himself the front runner. There wouldn't be that much competition. And certainly Kamala is not competition. Uh, 
this is why so many so many members of her staff have left. These people realize that she's a dead end. She's not going anywhere, and there's no point in attaching themselves to her. So, um, under that scenario, Biden would go to the end of his first term and not stand for re-election. That way they could get rid of him and Kamala. If in that kind of scenario, yes. I don't think that scenario is actually happening. I think the Democrats have basically decided this is the dead horse we're on. We're stuck with him. We're going to use our techniques, ballot harvesting, um, uh, primary rigging, whatever else it is. We're going to force this through, and we're going to demonstrate that we can win elections even with the worst candidate in the world. Wow. Not a, not a great scenario for our country. <laughs> no. Wow. We have got a great guest with us today. He joins us live here in our broadcast. Daniel Greenfield is with us. So, Daniel, talk to us about how uh, Barack Obama and the uh, BLM riots and, and everything, because uh, you talk about this in your book. G- give, give us more details on this. Well, to some people, the Black Lives Matter riots just emerged in 2020. They did not. They were part of a political operation. They really got underway in 2010, then 2012. By 2014, it really developed full blast. Now, if you're noting all those numbers are even numbers, there's a good reason for that. Uh, these uh, racial protests were tied up with election years, um, whether general election or midterm election. Uh, the big One of the big things that was going on was that the Obama White House was looking for ways to turn out black voters during midterm election. Black voters generally do not turn out during midterm election, and Obama was not on the ticket in the midterm election. So Black Lives Matter really originated as an effort to turn out black voters during midterm elections. Uh, this is what 2014 was very much about. And this is uh, what they came up with, which was uh, amping up uh, racial issues, uh, building an entire protest organization, giving a national platform. And what that, what the state actually did, which is what the administration is still doing, uh, they sent in co- uh, teams of community organizers that are within the Justice Department, they're known as Community Relations Service. Uh, they came in, uh, they community organized the locals. And this is something that is still going on now. You know, it's very similar with the Biden administration's Justice Department releasing a report attacking the police department um, in Minneapolis. This is the kind of thing that Obama, did, the Justice Department did on a very regular basis. So you intimidate the locals, you bring in some of your community organizers, you give the protesters a national platform, and boom, these are the basic ingredients of the Black Lives Matter movement and the riots that devastated the country. And it all began at a time when really most people thought that race riots were something from a long time ago. They might look back at the LA riots in the 90s, but overall that sort of thing seemed to have gone away. And then they came back in a very big way, and it was no accident at all. But recently, the Black Lives Matter organization announced that they were $8.5 million in the rears and that audits may cause them to go into bankruptcy, partly because the leadership had embezzled the money for their own personal or family use, not for the wishes that were were founded. Does, does the black community care? Well, the black community doesn't get that much of a say. It's not like anybody takes a vote and votes for Black Lives Matter or its leaders. These were 
um, organizations that were set up politically for political reasons in a very dishonest manner. And for the most part, their money was being managed and fundraised by external left-wing organizations. The corruption really began when Black Lives Matter finally, readers finally got their hands on all the money, tens of millions of dollars that were left over. And at that point, they began spending it on themselves, which was you know, entirely predictable. But it's not like black people get involved in this. You know, even the mem- family members of some of the people who were key figures in this, you know, like George Floyd, uh, Tamir Rice, they've come forward and said they have seen no benefit from this money. Their communities have seen no benefit from this money. But it doesn't matter because this was about rich white people and corporations uh, rewarding the left and promoting their political agendas rather than anything about the black community. There are some people who have recently looked at Black Lives Matter movement and have opined that the leadership, the true leadership of the organization, the power people are basically white, female, wealthy, not black. Well, that's a fairly typical profile for major left-wing organizations. That's the professional class that manages these organizations. Uh, the people out front are not necessarily the ones that are running things, but this is the case with our government also. So that the, 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 the Ivy League-educated white females. Because it's interesting, I went, back, I went back on Google and looked a lot of the film that was shot of the riots in uh, in Portland and Seattle and New York and L.A. And the people that were, the vast majority of people that I would see on the television screen were white. And they were down personally. That is, so, that's the profile. I fits the profile. Is is uh, Black Lives Matter waning with all the problems? Well, the organiz- uh, there are a number of Black Lives Matter organizations, but overall there's a decline in support. There's a decline in um, public profile. They're now really focusing on the groups because they're protest groups, and right now they don't need mass political protests. The thing is, they have the key. They have the program for doing it. So the next time they actually need protests, if the Republican wins this presidential election, uh, they're going to be able to turn that key and bring out those protests again. The organizations themselves don't matter that much because these are not the people who are running things. And they're going to be able to bring in another 50, 40 million, put it behind some other activists, uh, create maybe another hashtag entirely, and they're going to be able to do this all over again. But do you think with the with the... In, in the, 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 the article I read recently was that most of the money that came to Black Lives Matter came from corporate treasures and uh, treasuries. And uh, given the indictments and the, and the fraud and the manipulation of resources for personal gain, will corporate America want to give to that organization like they did before with all of the bad publicity going on? A lot of people don't pay attention to what corporate foundations are doing. 
Uh, sometimes there's light cast on it. Suddenly people look at what's the Chick-fil-A foundation doing? What's the Target foundation doing? And all these companies now have uh, DEI baked in, and these DEI programs also uh, make sure that they're going to direct 20% of their giving, 15% of their giving, or whatever it is, to um, black empowerment causes like these. So the money is still going to keep on going. You know, you've got what people are saying, you know, all these act, camp, campus activists that were all into identity politics, they were taking, you know, lesbian studies or black history, and they were getting degrees in that. Where are they going to get jobs? Well, they're getting jobs in DEI. And once they are there, they're going to move the money over to some of their political allies and their friends, which is what they're doing. And every corporation makes sure that they have their DEI department so they get their ESG scores. Uh, stop me if anybody is not uh, aware of what those things mean. As a result, the money is still going to keep going. So uh, given, given where you where you are in your in your writing, um, you've alluded to with a series of if, if the Democrats continue their ballot harvesting, if the Democrats continue with their absentee ballots, there's a good possibility they can drag the carcass of Joe Biden across the, the winning uh, of the, the line and he can win the presidency in 2024. Is that a fair assessment of where you are? It's not impossible, unfortunately. The bottom line is uh, when you have a lot of voters just turning out very strongly, making a point of it, um, then it's hard to just beat that with, organi with organizing. But if election rules continue to be altered, if ballot harvesting continues, and if just not enough people care about the election, and it's quite possible that will happen, if you, then it's going to be catastrophic. I interviewed a gentleman this morning, and uh, he said that, from what he can tell, the Republican National Committee has no plans in place for ballot harvesting or absentee ballots. That is what I've seen. You know, there were things that needed to be done in 2020. There were things that needed to be done in 2020. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.